The circle is cast, the candles lit, the spell is spoken, and Mother Moon is watching all that we say and do. For the next short passage of time, you are in an enchanted place called the Witching Hour. So it's a brand new year, and William and I are back to bring you a whole new year of the Witching Hour podcast. I have no idea what the past year was for most of you out there, but I can tell you it wasn't our best year. We lost a beloved cat and consequently spent a small mountain of money on the remaining two. We also had to do some unscheduled and expensive maintenance on our home, and I had to say goodbye to a very dear friend and to a group that I was instrumental in creating in 2012. It was a wonderful and very successful pagan group, and I was and still am very proud of everything we accomplished with this group. Unfortunately, there came a point after all these years that we parted ways. Which brings me to the theme and the subject matter of this podcast. I have also drawn material from my experiences of starting pagan groups and also from others whose experiences are very informative as well as my own. So if you're thinking of starting your own group or joining a group, listen very carefully for the next 30 or so minutes. I promise you, whether you are old to paganism or new to paganism, you need to know some of this. Please get in touch with us and let us know your views on this subject. As a matter of fact, on all the subjects. Maybe we will include them in another podcast later on in our season. Okay, let's get this show on the road. So, I began my research with an article I ran across entitled my own Examples of Forming and Organizing Pagan Groups and Covens, The Good, the Bad, and the Downright Ugly. It is true that we often learn more from failures than successes. In our years as active participants in the pagan religion, Bill and I have been very involved with pagan groups and organizations of all types. Some were very successful and others not so much. Lessons drawn from negative experiences with various pagan uh, organizations also enabled us to avoid a lot of errors when forming and organizing our new groups. I based our entire doctrine and dogma on the writings of Carl McCollman, and I know you guys who uh, have belonged to some of our groups are very familiar with him because I talk about him all the time. And if you are curious as to why him, after all, he left the pagan faith and went back to his Catholic roots, contact me. It's not as confusing as you think it is. And that's what all this is about when really researching the right way to form a lasting group. Find one that was successful for years and then failed, and then find out why it failed. I'm not sure if his following statement will be an example of the experiences Bill and I are concerned with as we were very careful about forming groups with all adults. Teens were another question altogether. But on the outside chance, you did start off as Sam describes in his experiences. I'm including it here. And Mr. Wagar goes on to say, The short-lived pagan groups are usually centered around a charismatic individual generally formed by teenagers with no formal training. No mentor or apprenticeship with an adult, just drawing from this or that popular pagan book author or latest cult film or more horror film content and actual information. 
This often provided enough enthusiasm in the do-it-yourself anti-hierarchic mindset. They persist for periods of time, generally four to six months, and are helpful in getting other teens and young folks started, but no more than that. Once in a while they continue longer but remain a small group of friends. Recruitment is by affinity and there is no interest in growing in size or influence. But as we have no experience with Mr. Wagar's teen priesties and beasties, we will leave this paragraph as an admonition to leave the kids with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the goth movement. There are groups, some legally incorporated, complete with charters and rules, etc., that are centered on the high priest or priestess, or both, or a little ruling group, which ingratiates themselves to the leaders. If the founder contributes and shows love, interest in the mission, and growth in the client memberships, they may do well for some years. They may grow and thrive to a certain point. However, when the charismatic influence of the main figure wanes, generally with a maximum of 25 to 45 members, they lose members. They begin to lose members. Some by attrition, some loss of interest, some personal reasons, but often some actually start their own groups and pull away from the, um, the original coven group and using the same original ideas of that group. I don't know how I feel about that, but if you're really good, I think it's probably a good idea. Many of these groups center on charismatic leaders that are better equipped to lead and or manipulate others. Now, that's a strange way to put it, but I'm sure you all have had experience with that if you are lifelong pagans. Religions, although some contest this notion, includes paganism and like movements that tend to attract the walking wounded. People who join because of damage in their lives, physical or psychological problems, life crises, and the variety of ills and other troubles. <sighs> this is natural, and some people actually thrive with a supportive group and move on with their lives. But there is a faction. There is a faction of folks who come to us that are so damaged and unaware of their destructive tendencies, they can cause a great deal of damage to other members and to the organization and its mission. This is one way to infect an entire group and very quickly and painfully and slowly. Either way, eventually, it will kill off your group. And oddly enough, there's no antivirus serum for it. <laughs> no, there's not. There sure isn't. These people are a key issue for leaders. What characterizes them is an exaggerated version of issues in the pagan community in general. A feeling of entitlement, very low self-esteem, a mixture of hero worship directed toward anyone in authority, coupled with an intense cynical desire to see anyone that they think is better than they are fail and fall. Antagonists are constantly working to undercut leaders and groups that are not centered on them while being incapable of organizing anything by themselves. When a group has no specific task or mission, which I'm happy to say our coven said did have in spades, the people turn their energies to controlling others in the group. This is usually accompanied by some set of rules or a charter that is draconian in style and very transparent in intent. 
There is a compulsion to remold every person into an image of what they think the group should be. Formal structures based on transparent and fair rules agreed to by everyone, which apply fairly and equally to every person, are the best way to protect the organization from gossip, whisper campaigns, faction fights, and the deadly wearing of con and constant niggling attacks and questioning of all decisions. In other words, professional functioning and organization that is for everyone's benefit and remaining centered on the mission rather than the benefit of every one person or leader is the best guarantor of the mission and the group. If there are no pagan groups active in a community where people who have an itch for spiritual guidance and communal fellowship are to join other organizations when the movement itself provides insufficient outlets for their new ideas and energies. Our thanks, somewhat not confidently, to Sam Wagar for his views on what is good and what is not so good when starting, developing, or joining a pagan group. We hope you have experiences of your own, and if you do, share them with us. Continuing on, we have another article by John Halstead in, uh, from April 21st, 2017 entitled, Why Contemporary Paganism Deserves to Die. Does it? Does paganism deserve to survive? I don't know whether contemporary paganism is dying or not, but it's definitely changing. Contemporary paganism is being squeezed by the same social, economic, and technological pressures that all other contemporary religions are struggling with. Generational differences with millennials, economic inequality, the internet, Oh, there's that internet again. Which got us thinking, why are we bothering to struggle? Why not just let decay take its course? Recently, during a congregational forum at a universal Unitarian church, the perennial question of how we can get more members came up. There were lots of ideas for bringing in and retaining new people. But no one seemed to be asking what I think, and this is Mr. Halstead speaking, is the most important decision. Why do we think we deserve more members? I think deserve is maybe an inappropriate word to pick there. Why do we think we should get more members? Uh, why do we need more members? Why do we need more members? Deserve, uh, I mean, it's not like you did something right and you win a prize with more membership involved. Yeah, yeah. But, continuing, institutions have a way of taking on a life of their own so that people start asking how to save the institution and forget to ask whether it should be saved. I was impressed recently by an NPR story about a congregation in Chicago. The church resembled my own in that it's a congregation that is small and getting smaller. Liberal owns a historic building. The congregation had decided that what matters to them is not saving the life of their church, but using what life they have to do the next right thing. For them, that meant becoming a sanctuary congregation, whatever the heck that is. Why is paganism dying? Personally, Ellen, I don't think it is, but we'll bear with the article writer here. Contemporary paganism isn't an institution, but we do have institutions and many of them are struggling to survive. 
Cherry Hill Seminary announced last year that it might not be able to continue its programming. This was written in 2017, and this is now 2020, and uh, please note that Cherry Hill Seminary is alive and thriving as of this very day. And Cups is hardly thriving. And note too, to listeners, as far as we know, Cups is also thriving as of this date. The Pagan Community's Statement on the Environment, which is quite possibly the single largest expression of pagan voices ever, has not yet collected a mere 10,000 signatures in the two years since it was published. And as far as I can tell, none of the organizers of pagan festivals and conferences have reported significant growth in recent years. These are just a few examples of pagan institutions they have been involved with to one degree or another over the years. The number of people who identify to some degree as pagan may be increasing. It's hard to say. But in the absence of institutions, we pagans are more, not less, vulnerable to centrifugal social forces which dissipate our solidarity and dilute our collective power. Even while the number of people on the periphery of the pagan community grows, the number of leaders in the center or centers is shrinking. This is what Jonathan Woolley describes in his article, British Paganism is Dying. Woolley blames capitalist forces which have destroyed the market for small pagan businesses, while also sapping the free time which people previously devoted to voluntary pagan associations. The commentators to Woolley's post have other theories about the death of British paganism. One commenter blames video games. Oh, sure. Another blames Ronald Hutton. Who's Ronald Hutton? Oh, um, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> Another one blames naked dancing. Hey, I blame that too. <laughs> Yet another commenter blames the infiltration of Christians into paganism. Seriously? Seriously. <laughs> as good as Woolley's article is, I doubt it, the comments are worth the price of admission. I don't disagree with Woolley's analysis, but I think there is another factor at work here, one which Woolley himself touches on in his article, Pagan Self-Absorption. We've become vulnerable to a sort of religious hipsterism, treating our religion less as a vision of a better world and more as a mode of personal distinction that lifts us upward in the unending churn of the class system. In these trying times, active engagers need healing and well-being as much as they need limitations. Now is the time for us to reflect more than ever upon our responsibilities as magicians rather than our rights as religionists. We must care for the earth and its peoples. Amen. And we must learn not to be quite so wordy and make it more understandable to the common soul. I'm going to pass this over for a second and let Elle read another section. Pagan self-absorption. Whether we are earth-centered or deity-centered in general, pagans tend to be an ego-centered bunch, myself included. That's the author speaking, not me. Um, maybe I am too, though. I'm really not sure. I mean, I'm very proud to be a pagan and all that sort of thing. And I love what they're doing, at least the pagans that I know. At least they're trying. But anyway, back to pagan self-absorption. There are both individual, idiosyncratic, and broader historical reasons for this. To begin with, something about the way most people come to paganism, usually by leaving their religion of origin, which tends to make us obsessed with questions of religious identity. Okay, I can see that. As a result, so much of our energy is spent arguing among ourselves 
over who is and isn't a real pagan. Okay. In addition, contemporary paganism as a whole never seems to have grown out of its cultural adolescence. Whether we date its beginnings to the witchcraft revival started by Gerald Gardner in the 1950s, or the American neo-pagan revival out of the 1970s, paganism has to go through a formative period during which time communal identity and institutions become consolidated. Then, in the 1980s, we went through an existential crisis in the form of the satanic ritual abuse hoax. Okay, I am so uh, I am so embarrassed that I never heard of that, but I'd love to know about it. Is that where all the goats went? I have no <laughs> idea, but it's very interesting. I mean, I may have heard about it, but it wasn't put this way, so I don't know. Uh, maybe somebody will be real sweet and look it up and, and give us a, a call or, or uh, send us an email or something about it. Fake news. <laughs> Fake news. But it seems we never fully moved beyond this as a community. As a result, what energy isn't spent fighting with ourselves in identity wars is still devoted to trying to convince outsiders that we deserve the same rights, respect, etc. as other religions. And I absolutely understand that. And it is still going on, but I didn't know it had to do with the satanic ritual abuse hoax. I will tell you this, too, just one last thing uh, uh, about this, this particular paragraph. Uh, the thing about um, Gerald Gardner in the 50s and American Neil uh, revival in the 70s and all that sort of thing, and then the 1980s, is all just, um, I don't understand any of that at all. I think that we started when we started and that was before there were other organized religions. Otherwise, we would have been called pagans, and so on and so on. And there's enough archaeological and anthropological information to let us know that that is perfectly feasible and makes a lot of sense. The rest of this stuff is not new news, it's old news, and it started because people wanted to write and to make a lot of money off the paganism, and so now they have, and still they do, and that's just fine, but we're ancient path, and we love that. Anyway, the overall result is that we are obsessed with ourselves and what people engaged in fighting for social justice in the world in myriad ways. Similarly, I believe that contemporary paganism also has a saving vision that needs to be shared in the world. A vision of the inherent divinity and interconnectedness, well that's an interesting word, of all living beings our physical bodies, and the earth itself. Like us, pagans have an aversion to proselytizing, which means that if other people are ever to learn about our saving vision, then it will have to be through other forms of positive engagement with the non-pagan world. Ryan C., and I'm not sure who Ryan C. is at this very moment, but the, this is the author's words, Ryan C. frames the question this way in his comment to Woolley's um, article. Do we want more pagans, and in quotes, increased numbers, or do we want pagan ideas to be a broader part of social discourse and be accepted by non-pagans as well? <sighs> 
I'm sorry, that's still an argument about non-pagans as opposed to real pagans or pagans in general or anything, but apparently it is. I think it's time, past time in fact, to pull our collective heads out of the self-created broom closet. We need to set forth from our pagan safe spaces, which have become intellectual ghettos, and move into the world. We start working together with each other and with non-pagans for a better world. Then, if we survive, we can say we earned it. And of all the things that this particular man, and what was his name again, Mr. John Halstead, um, this was actually one of the best things that I've read, because it is true. I had looked, I, I, I don't think that I'm, I think paganism is dying as, um, as much as Mr. Halstead does, but this last paragraph in particular, and a couple of more places in his article, um, I absolutely agree with, and I am really tired of having to be in the, well, I, we, my husband and I aren't, but a lot of people are in the proverbial self-created room closet and probably will stay there for the rest of their lives. And a lot of it has to do with really serious things like uh, people going to court for their children and losing their children just because they're pagan among other things. We will address that at another broadcast. But now, for something that you can do and relax and enjoy. Go, take it away, baby. And if you want me to help you with that, I'll help you with that one, too. No, I'm good. Okay. Um, I was looking for something that would start the new year outright for those of you who are interested in tarot slash oracle slash uh, whatever kind of card you like to use to divine. I realize we're into January now, and this article was written in December. So we didn't do a podcast in December. Wah, wah, wah. Okay, now we are, and I'm going to catch us up. This is entitled, A New Year's Tarot Spread, How Far You've Come, and What Lies Ahead. It was uh, written by Meg, whoever the heck that is, and it was posted in autostraddle.com on December 20th, 2019. I've uh, summarized it a little bit and taken uh, some of it, but pretty much the intent is still here in the article. And she says, with 2019 ended, there's a rich spirit of reflection in the air. From looking back on accomplishments and achievements from this year to zooming out even more and considering the past decade. After all, we're into a new decade now. This is an opportunity to examine just how far we've come as well as what we want from the next calendar year. I know, everybody's thinking, money, money, money. Well, it's possible. And whether you chose a focus word, made a vision board, set a bottom line, wrote out a list of resolutions, TARO in itself can be a useful tool for reflecting on how far you've come, as well as making space to consider what the year ahead may bring. Now, there are many ways to use TARO decks for the new year. You can choose a card intentionally, you can use a chosen archetype in rituals or spell work, or can meditate on a particular theme that blends several cards together. And while picking a specific card to work with is a powerful way to organize your thoughts and intentions for the coming year, I would like to suggest let the cards speak freely in this simple spread, one that provides both a theme for the year as well as cards to focus on for each month. Rather than seeing these cards as predictive by leaving them open to interpretation, and revisiting them through the year, we create space for these ideas to expand and build upon each other, allowing for growth, for new perspectives, and the shifts that 2020 may bring. All you need for this reading is 
a deck of tarot cards, although if you like you can also incorporate an oracle deck. I recommend keeping a journal or place to write handy as well so you can record your first impression and overall insights during your reading. If you'd like, you can also incorporate candles, crystals, incense, witch doctors, or any of your favorite witchy tools into this reading. <laughs> I added that, sorry. Allowing it to become an end of your ritual for you. Since the year's already ended, it's a beginning of your ritual for you. Follow your instincts. Do what feels right. This can be as simple or as elaborate as you wish. Before you get started, take some deep breaths. Light a candle, if you choose. Clear your mind. Ring some bells. Lock the kitties away so they can't bother you. I like to let this spread be open and simply ask for insights into what's ahead. But if you have a specific goal for 2020 that you want guidance around, like new opportunities for career advancement, expanding your chosen family, etc., hold that goal in your mind as you draw cards. We'll start by drawing the theme card for the year. Pull out the major arcana cards from your deck. Shuffle them well. Use your favorite method to draw one archetype from this pile. This is your theme for the year. We pick a major card mainly because it, it tends to be a little more defined as to what it's going to provide for you, whereas the minor ones are supportive of it. So that's why a major card is picked for the theme of your year. Then for the next card, you repeat this process either with the minor arcana pile or if you want to institute your oracle deck now, pick an oracle card and use it to uh, help clarify your theme. And oracle cards might be good for this because they give you more of an overall feeling of emotion and how you're feeling and how things are going to work out in a general sort of way without the specific of a tarot telling you that A plus B equals C. Now spend some time working with these cards. Consider how they can help you set an intention. Find a focus or clarify your goals for 2020. What connections emerge? What themes do you see? How do these cards resonate with where you are right now and where you hope to go? Once you've used these two cards, be it a mixture of tarot oracle or just tarot cards, spend some time with them for 2020 as a theme. And then draw 12 more cards. Why 12, do you say? Well, how many ones are there in a year? There are 12, Bill. Okay, that's why. Thanks. One for each month. Ta-da! Do this by putting your tarot deck back together. Shuffle the majors and minors until they're well combined. Draw a card for each month, one at a time, until you have your full year laid out before you. Now, uh, this pattern online, she had a chart that had the two theme cards set off to the side. And she had drawn a little box for each month of the year and <clears throat> left a spot underneath it to make notes on what that card meant for you or what it could mean for you for that year. I like that idea. And you can also keep a journal like it says. I like that idea too. Or you can also just remember it. I don't like that idea. I'm old. Okay. <laughs> Miss Alzheimer's chiming in here. <laughs> I recommend recording the cards in your journal or calendar, allowing you to reflect on them at the beginning of each new month. So when February starts and March starts and April starts, pull that card out, look at it, what it's meaning for you for that particular month, and also use it as a review of what has happened for the prior months. Chances are these cards will make more sense in the context of your year. For now, consider how these cards connect with your theme cards and what they can help you uncover about those broader archetypes. And 
if it works well with you, if you're happy with it, next year you can make it a resolution to do it again every year. Have fun with it. Remember, Taro is a roadmap with many directions to go. Don't tie yourself down to one path. Explore and enjoy. And don't forget, happy taroing! <laughs> hey, this was fun, and thank you, Meg. And sorry we don't have your last name, honey, or where, where people can get in touch with you. But you did a nice job with this. Really nice. And so did my hubby. I really appreciate it. Okay, so is that it, or is this a wrap? It's a wrap. Now is the time to blow out the candles, pack our herbs, close our book of spells, and fold our tents. But before I go, we'd really like to hear from you. We'd like to know what you'd like to hear from us on the show and how often. We'd also like to hear from you if you are involved in the pagan community and have something you'd like to share with the listening audience. It's even possible that you could come and do a guest shot on The Witching Hour. Contact us through the website, thewitchinghour.com. I also have to thank the team of magicians who help put this show together every time we do one. Rob Steele, Lee Vowell, and the Happy Hour Network for hosting this program. There are links to both their pages on our page, thewitchinghour.com. And until we meet again, stay magical. Stay magical.